The Bowery in Lower Manhattan is New York City's oldest thoroughfare. The 1.25-mile stretch has a rich and storied past, with strong connections to vaudeville, beat literature, and punk rock. But nowadays, the Bowery's history has somewhat faded into its present, which includes high-end shops, bars, and eateries. The Bowery Alliance of Neighbors is working to preserve and protect the history of the legendary street. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. The Bowery Alliance recently sponsored a project involving 64 window placards celebrating the Bowery's remarkable but largely forgotten contributions to American culture and history. It's called Windows on the Bowery. I recently visited the area to talk with Alliance President David Mulkins. My name is David Mulkins. I'm the president of the Bowery Alliance of Neighbors, and we're a community uh, preservation group that uh, formed 10 years ago to try to preserve and protect uh, the building, the residents, the small businesses, and the character of what is actually New York City's oldest street. The Bowery, uh, in addition to being the oldest street, its uh, footprint is a Native American trail. George Washington marched down the Bowery in triumph after the British were uh, removed from the city. They evacuated and Washington marched down the Bowery and raised his glass in triumph with his troops at the Bull's Head Tavern, which was located just below Canal Street on the Bowery. The Bowery was uh, a Dutch farm road, uh, and that's where the term Bowery comes from. Uh, the Dutch word uh, for farm was Bowery, and the name just just kind of stuck. Now, the Bowery is only just over a mile long, right? It's, it's a mile and a quarter, and most of us uh, consider Chatham Square uh, to Cooper Square, though originally the Bowery stretched all the way up what is now 4th Avenue, just above Astor Place to 14th Street. Uh, And in fact, the term Union Square uh, actually refers to the fact that the Bowery and Broadway in early New York, the two most important thoroughfares, met at Union Square. How did the Bowery evolve from that Native American footpath? It just gradually happened. Uh, It's changed over and over again. Uh, The Bowery actually architecturally uh, has a great diversity of buildings and in fact there are representations of buildings from every decade from the 1780s to the present on the street. Uh, The lower part of the Bowery at one time was a butcher's district and uh, the first free African-American settlements uh, in New York City were located on uh, the Bowery uh, below Houston and Chatham Square. New York City's first entertainment district was the Bowery, uh, and there were some enormous theaters, some of which had 3,500 seats. And what kind of shows were presented there? Well, in the beginning... The big theater that was the talk of the town for a while was the Bowery Theater, and that had about 3,000 seats. That was located originally, the building's not there anymore, at 46 Bowery. 
And they started out trying to uh, compete with another theater in the city, which was the Chatham Theater. And they wanted to attract, you know, the elite of the city who came for a while. But because the Bowery was surrounded by uh, working class and immigrant communities uh, the, and the upper classes were moving further north, uh, the Bowery Theater ended up catering more to uh, working class and immigrant communities. And uh, they presented Shakespeare. Uh, you could see blood and thunder melodramas, sword fights. And by the 1840s and 50s, when the institution of minstrelsy uh, took hold, they also presented some of that. The Bowery Theater had the first uh, major performance before a big audience of tap dance. William Henry Lane, the father of tap dance, had grown up in the Five Points ghetto, which is, you know, was located just a little bit uh, southwest of the Bowery. And in addition to the Bowery Theater, there were scores of other theaters, dime museums in the late 1800s, and the, the street entertainment-wise, has important links to tap dance, vaudeville, Yiddish theater, uh, the first two great songwriters, Stephen Foster and Irving Berlin. Uh, Harry Houdini had uh, performed in many locations on the Bowery uh, before he hit the big time and started out with his brother, the brothers Houdini, and then his first solo appearance at 298 Bowery was at the Globe Dime Museum. May West. Now you're talking about dime museums and I'm sure someone listening right now is not familiar with what a dime museum is. Uh, good question. Uh, a dime museum was usually a relatively small theater and uh, it would contain uh, a couple of exhibitions spaces where they might show artifacts uh, from a particular early civilization or they might have uh, some what was in the old days referred to as freaks, somebody with a deformity, somebody extremely tall, somebody uh, extremely short. And in addition to the exhibition spaces, you would also have a performance space where you might even get, uh, you know, a play sometimes or uh, a vaudeville wherein you would have a variety of performers uh, like magicians, acrobats, contortionists, singers, uh, and comedians. Vaudeville uh, was extremely important and, in fact, the Bowery uh, historians give credit to for the beginnings of vaudeville. There was a guy named Tony Pastor who opened up a theater on the Bowery at 199 to 201 Bowery. It was called Tony Pastor's Opera House. And from the beginning, he advertised it as a clean place uh, that was friendly to families so that you could bring your wife and kids. And this really changed and revolutionized uh, what was called variety theater uh, because it had a much broader appeal. So, so basically, Tony Pastor began to clean up 
Variety Theater on the Bowery. He was there for 10 years at that location before moving up uh, to a bigger, uh, more famous location on Union Square. A lot of people might associate the Bowery with gangs, the gangs of New York, and maybe more specifically, the Bowery Boys. They actually had a name, the Bowery Boys. Absolutely. Uh, Early New York, most of your immigrant groups, as well as nativist groups, uh, competed in in different districts of the city. Uh, In some cases, uh, especially in the early period, uh, the gangs were, their raison d'etre was really firefighting because you didn't have a citywide, you know, uh, municipally funded uh, fire department. So the different uh, immigrant groups, certain neighborhoods would have their own uh, firefighting groups. And along the way, because of competition uh, and turf wars, you, you actually had what was famously depicted in the Martin Scorsese film, uh, Gangs of New York, you actually had bloody battles. Uh, the Bowery Boys, which was nativist, fought uh, the Irish gang, the Dead Rabbits, in a two-day battle that started in front of 40 Bowery, a building that's still there. That was the headquarters of the Bowery Boys. And uh, about eight people died in, in that very famous battle. One of the things we find uh, particularly interesting about uh, the, the gang, the Bowery Boys, is how over time uh, the usage of the term uh, changed and the image of the term Bowery Boys changed. Uh, in the early period, you would have had a, a Bowery Boy uh, dressed in firefighter garb with uh, a red shirt and a stovepipe hat, as, as you again see in, in films. And then in the late 1800s, the Bowery Boy was more associated with, uh, you know, a roughneck uh, guy that might dress in really loud clothes when he would go out on the town like plaid pants and uh, you know a loud shirt and then at the turn of the last century uh, there was a famous uh, cartoon character in comic books called the Bowery Boy which was just a you know a teenage kid that was kind of like a an early version of a superhero then in the 1930s through the 1950s, uh, Hollywood had the Bowery Boys gang, uh, which was really more uh, comic, uh, not too violent, always getting into trouble, but very different from the early Bowery Boys. Uh, and of course, today on the Bowery in the neighborhood, uh, you've got a couple of uh, examples of Bowery Boys. If you go to the very expensive Bowery Hotel, which is located uh, just south of 3rd Street on the east side of the Bowery. The doormen uh, are dressed in a fashion very similar to the early firefighting Bowery boys. And then uh, if you go to Great Jones Street between Lafayette and Bowery, the uh, firehouse there, uh, ladder number nine, uh, is the Bowery Boys. They've got it written on uh, the side of the fire trucks, and uh, they consider themselves 
Bowery Boys, which is interesting because basically the Bowery Boys have come full circle. They started as a firefighting gang, and they're today uh, on Great Jones Street off Bowery. Uh, they're still fighting fires. However, uh, these are not. Uh, this is not a gang. It's just a group of uh, you know. Uh, wonderful local heroes that help keep our neighborhood safe. A New York City bus just a few minutes ago was making a lot of noise as you were talking, but no doubt that the Bowery has really seen the evolution of transportation, including being the site of America's first streetcars, right? Yes, and uh, actually when we when we think of streetcars, we usually think of San Francisco and, you know, the streetcars being generated by electricity, but the first streetcars uh, were horse-drawn, and in fact, the first streetcars in America started on the Bowery, and it went from Prince Street up to 14th Street, and uh, that was, I believe, 1832. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. And then in later periods, uh, the Bowery had uh, one of the most famous of the early elevated trains. And the elevated train is generally considered to have been uh, one of the things that made the Bowery, which was already kind of a roughneck district, entertainment district, a little, a, a little dicier. Uh, because it darkened the street. In the beginning, you had uh, a one-track elevated near the sidewalk on both sides of the Bowery. Uh, and then, uh, starting around 1916, uh, they put a, a center, a couple of center lanes, and then the street became really dark and, and much dicier. The elevated train uh, is here no more. It came down in 1956. What would you say are among the biggest moments in history that the Bowery witnessed? Definitely uh, George Washington's march down the Bowery when the British were evacuating is extremely important. And if you look back uh, in old newspapers and magazines, for I believe it was for about 75 years in the 1800s, uh, Evacuation Day was one of the city's biggest celebrations. You know, most people have never even heard of that. We, we would love to see it come back because it's, it's very important in, you know, the independence uh, and liberation of the United States. That was certainly uh, extremely important. Another American president also made history on the Bowery, right? Abraham Lincoln. Yes, and we're, we're actually standing right in, in front of the location. The building still stands. Cooper Union, which is the United States' first free university, has a very important great hall at Cooper Union in the basement, and it has been uh, for, you know, 150 years, one of the bastions of free speech in this country, even in times when, you know, for one reason or another, uh, free speech is very hard to come by. The Great Hall at Cooper Union has always welcomed marginal voices and, uh, you know, 
allowed free speech. Uh, even uh, Emma Goldman spoke here, you know, uh, Red Emma, the anarchist, and Abe Lincoln, uh, his speech here, his anti-slavery speech, uh, is considered to have, along with the Matthew Brady photograph of Lincoln, to have been uh, the thing that helped propel him into the presidency and made the nation, you know, sit up and take notice of, uh, of Abe Lincoln. Many, many other uh, people have spoken at the Great Hall, uh, like uh, Susan B. Anthony, uh, Frederick Douglass, Mother Jones, uh, Eugene Debs, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, labor leaders like Clara Lemlich, uh, and many, many others, Andrew Carnegie, uh, uh, even Stephen Colbert, and, uh, you know, recent presidents have spoken here. You mentioned Harry Houdini. We went through a whole bunch of other names. You just listed some more. Who else would you say are some of the more notable names associated with the Bowery? Many historians uh, that have written about the Bowery uh, have mentioned the fact that uh, the Bowery was extremely important on your way up as a performer and in some cases on your way down. Uh, in the 1800s, there was an extremely important actress, Fanny Herring, who uh, we found on an, an old Dime Museum poster, appearing in a play, but, you know, long after, you know, her glory days, you know, in the bigger theaters. We recently uh, were sent an article, uh, a vintage article, in which Sophie Tucker was talking about her Bowery days, and this was something, you know, we were totally unaware of. Uh, we've looked through biographies and so forth. It's really not much there, except this this interview with Sophie Tucker in which she says that the Bowery audiences were which were very demanding helped shape her as a performer because you know because they demanded so much from her Mae West uh, as far as we know never performed on the Bowery but her mother used to take her to the Bowery and she was totally smitten with the ambiance that she found there, and of course later penned her most uh, signature uh, play and film script, uh, Diamond Lil, which as a film, of course, was She Done Him Wrong, uh, a wonderful, humorous uh, homage to the Bowery that she remembered from her youth. That's also, by the way, the film in which she has the cinema's most famous seduction line, uh, which is more or less, come up and see me sometime. She actually phrased it a little bit different in the movie, but that's what's passed in, into legend. You know, I, I always did like a man in a uniform. That one fits you grand. Why don't you come up sometime and see me? I'm home every evening. Yeah, but I'm busy every evening. Busy? So what are you trying to do, insult me? No, no, not at all. I'm just busy, that's all. You see, we're holding meetings in Jacobson's Hall every evening. Anytime you have a moment to spare, I'll be glad to have you drop in. You're more than welcome. I heard you. But you ain't kidding me any. You know, I met your kind before. Why don't you come up sometime, huh? Well, I... 
Don't be afraid. I won't tell. But, uh... Come up. I'll tell your fortune. Ah, oh, you can be had. I understand that Al Jolson also has a Bowery connection. Uh, yes. Now, Jolson, uh, in a radio interview, uh, recalled his beginnings as a singer. He credits the Bowery as being the first place he performed as a singer. Uh, we know that he did perform uh, in various locations on the Bowery, including uh, Miner's Bowery Theater. In the radio interview, he, he refers to uh, coming here and singing at a place he thought was McGurk's. That may not be true, but he certainly remembered that the Bowery was the first place that he performed as a singer. I was nothing. Just a poor little kid on the streets of Washington, D.C. Shining shoes, selling papers, or anything. I can remember the first job I ever got singing. I was passing the stage door of a theater on 29th Street in New York City. The great Faye Templeton was rehearsing a new song. I stood there and listened, and listened, until I was singing along with her. Finally, I remembered I was hungry. <laughs> you get awful hungry when you're 11 years old. So I started walking down towards the Bowery, and I kept hearing the piano player playing that tune. And I kept getting hungrier, too. I didn't have any money. So I went to a joint named McGurk's or something like that, and I asked the guy if he'd give me a cup of coffee if I'd sing a song. He said, okay. And the song was... Rosie, you are my posy. Jimmy Durante uh, spoke about his early days on the Bowery. Uh, Irving Berlin, to help his family out uh, and be one less mouth to feed. Irving Berlin, Itzy Berlin, left home at a very young age when he was a boy and lived on the street and eventually got a job as a newsboy. And when he had noticed... Uh, other newsboys sometimes breaking into song, which might get them extra tips and so forth. He started developing uh, his voice, and when he uh, encountered the famous Chuck Connors, who was the self-styled mayor of Chinatown at 18 Bowery, Chuck Connors took him around the corner to an establishment on Pell Street where Irving Berlin got his first singing waiter job and began writing songs, wrote his first song, first published song uh, on Pell Street just off the Bowery. In more uh, recent times, in uh, the latter half of uh, the 1900s, during the period when the Bowery was pretty much associated strictly as a flophouse dive bar district. Nonetheless, uh, this is when uh, one of the most remarkable artist community emerged uh, in New York City uh, because the Bowery was considered kind of a dicey place. Real estate prices were much less, and you could rent or even in some cases buy a space uh, on the upper floors of Bowery buildings, and so from the 1940s to the present, the Bowery became this really incredible uh, district 
or community of artists, cutting-edge artists, that include uh, some really important figures, such as Maya Lin, uh, uh, Mark Rothko, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, uh, William Burroughs, Amiri Baraka, uh, and just a, a huge list. Uh, the New Museum on their website has a full listing of uh, the famous artists that have or continue to to live on the Bowery. It's 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 an extremely long list, and the influence on American culture in in the last 60, 70 years is truly an enormous. Uh, abstract Expressionism, uh, Mark Rothko at his studio at 222 Bowery painted those famous Seagram murals. In the 1970s, uh, Hilly Crystal established uh, the famous rock mecca, uh, CBGB, at 315 Bowery, and the list is very long of performers that started there or performed there. Uh, I was a high school history teacher at the time, and I used to occasionally go to CBGB's to see some of my students perform there because Hilly Crystal, you know, kept his arms open for up-and-coming musicians, and he allowed teenagers even to perform inside CBGB. That was a tremendous loss to the culture of this city when when that... It's a clothing store now. It's a clothing store. It the is. Ramones, Blondie, and now it's a clothing store. Uh, it's it's a John Varvatos clothing store. Uh, and to John Varvatos' credit, uh, he did uh, preserve, when he moved in, uh, the elements of the space that were still there. You can still, if you go in there, you can actually see some of the... Uh, some of the walls and then going down the stairs uh, a little bit of the character. So Dave, talk to me about this window display here now showcasing the history of the Bowery. Well, the posters, uh, there's 64 different posters are on display real big in the western windows of the Cooper Union Foundation building. Uh, They are also on display inside the landmark uh, bank that's at 58 Bowery. It's currently HSBC Bank. It was originally Citizen Savings Bank. And in addition to those full displays of all the posters, uh, the posters are exhibited in the individual locations uh, that are connected to the various uh, pieces that we are celebrating. Uh, this project is a follow up to our successful effort to get the Bowery on the state and national register of historic places. That was a project that took about three years, uh, and we did it in collaboration with another organization, Two Bridges Neighborhood Council. This project, uh, the Windows on the Bowery project, was a collaboration with 18 writer-historian researchers and the graphic design department uh, at Cooper Union under the direction of Mindy Lang and her professional practice class. Uh, They did extraordinary work. Um, These 64 posters are giving the broad history of the Bowery 
and also looking at some of the individuals, some of the architecture, uh, some of the events, and in in and some of the firsts that are associated with the Bowery. We can also pull back and say uh, that we have really only scratched the surface. There are so many other things that have happened on this street that, you know, many people have emailed or called us and said, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? There are many other things uh, that, that we could have done, but we wanted to give kind of a sampling of the many layers of history associated uh, with this amazing street. The first community garden on the Bowery, right? Yes, uh, Liz Christie Garden, which is on the northeast corner of Houston and Bowery. First uh, community garden in New York City. And there's also a baseball first on the Bowery, right? There, There is. Uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, Harry Houdini's first solo appearance was at the Globe Dime Museum uh, at 298 Bowery. There's a restaurant uh, supply business there now. The building that was there before uh, Globe Dime Museum uh, was an older building called the Gotham, Gotham Inn, and that is where the Gotham Baseball Club had their, their meetings. Uh, historian uh, John Thorne credits this as the first baseball club in America. Dave, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. David Mulkins is the president of the Bowery Alliance of Neighbors. More information about the group and the Windows on the Bowery project at BoweryAlliance.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.